Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on the show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about specific science-related topics, such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today, we're joined with Dr. Abraham, CEO and co-founder of Magellan Life Sciences, which is dedicated to bringing a new type of sweetener to market that is, I believe, 2,000% more sweet than sugar, but it's made from a protein from a plant, so it's much healthier, and we get into the health benefits, how he's made it, the issues he's going over, and how the things he has to do to be able to have it ready to market within two years. Before we jump in, I wanted to give a shout out to a a reviewer. East Coast Sam left a five-star review saying this is a fantastic podcast, and they really enjoyed the episode on preventing deaths in surgery rooms with Galpal. So, Thank you, East Coast Sam, and I hope you enjoy this episode as well. If I'm pronouncing this right, the startup you built is called Magellan, right? Uh, yes. Okay. Now, where does that come from? Because I'm pretty sh- I'm pretty sure there's a, you know, a famous explorer named Magellan, and he'd been all over the world, so I don't know if maybe that had some influence to it. So where did you get that name? Pretty much the explorer was our inspiration, and more than the exploration, the fact that he took such a big risk and going into the unknown, trying to circumnavigate the whole globe was something was very inspirational for us because as a startup company, when we were looking for inspiration, what do we work on and what, what problem are we going to address? We identified sugar reduction as a very big problem uh, that needs addressing for the global community. And at that point, most of them were artificial sweeteners that were approved. So we were we developed a program to look into plant-derived sweeteners. And that's an area that was pretty much not known very much and there was a lot of developmental risk and other aspects to it so so we thought that would be an appropriate name for the company you know take a calculated risk and shoot for the star uh, stars i guess magellan back then circumnavigating the world that's like being the first people to land on the moon like it's a, it's a very crazy time so i've been recently learning that there were islamic traders all the way in australia in the middle ages which is kind of crazy that there was that people doing trade from like all over. No, it was, it was a very seafaring, I think, very flourishing time, I think, those times in terms of trade and from the Middle East region, they were going all over the world. So jumping into what you've built, you mentioned that it's plant-based, which I talked to a couple of people at like Costco, which is like a, and I was telling them like, hey, I'm, I'm going to meet, I'm going to meet with someone like you. And this is what he's developed. Like what, what type of things would interest you? It's like, well, is it, is it natural? Because a lot of people are really into the natural thing. So if it's plant-based, I, I imagine you can kind of put like the natural label on it versus synthetic. Like, how would you describe like that type of, of spectrum? Like, if it's on like completely natural and you kind of just find a way to tap into it to like completely synthetic, like how is it on that? The way we look at it, or the way I think we should look at it is anything that evolution has had the luxury of evolving over years, over millennia, to actually develop a safe molecule that has been tried and tested within, you know, animals, local population, per se, is a safe natural molecule. And how you make it, I don't think defines the nat- the naturalness of the molecule. It's a natural molecule. Whereas if you take the artificial molecules, they have been made in the lab, and the luxury that evolution has of time of evolving it into a safer molecule is not there. So that I, I mean, that's the main distinction I would make of artificial as a natural, and because our sweetener has does occur in nature, has a very safe history of consumption. 
I would we we would call it natural. Yeah, I think most people would agree. I would agree that like synthetic is really when you make it all in the lab. It, I think that's like the big way to do. Kind of the origin story. Like, how did you discover the plant, and then hey, this would be something to tap from it. So, so my history with this molecule goes back almost I think 15, 20 years. Uh, so this has been known in the literature and from the local tribes who live in West Africa. This fruit has been consumed by them for centuries as a sweetener in their food. Gained prominence in the Western literature only in the 1980s. It was discovered by a French group. They identified that the sweetener is a protein molecule in the fruit and not a carbohydrate. So it's been there. It's been there in the public domain. And problem always has been, how do you make enough of it to make it commercially viable? You can, one can take it, play around with it in the lab, do a few experiments and understand how this molecule works. But then the utility of it ends there for the consumer. The, the, the consumer doesn't derive any utility from this. So during, like I was mentioning, I was, I was a postdoc at Stanford. And at that time, I was trying to understand how humans perceive taste through the taste receptors. And to do that, one of the molecules that I was also playing around with was Brazil the sweetener that we are developing. And there were two aspects to it. One was it's very hard to make. At that time, it was a nightmare to make even a little of it to study it. And after making it, I tasted it, uh, obviously. <laughs> and it it's immediately strikes you as sugar. The first thought that comes into your mind is of sugar, cane sugar. At that time, it was, you know, it's a project. I was studying it in my own academic ways and trying to understand the mechanism of taste. But ever since then, it's been at the back of my mind. And since this was about 2002, and as the years progressed, the sugar problem started coming to the forefront in society, both in terms of the prevalence of metabolic diseases like, uh, you know, diabetes and obesity, and also more recently, the sugar tax. So from a, so when we started the company, that was the first thing that I really wanted to, you know, develop and, and because the consumer at the end of the day wants something that tastes like sugar. Realistically, I mean, forget everything as the health benefits, leave those aside. They just want a substitute for sugar that actually tastes like sugar. And in my opinion, uh, this was the ideal candidate. So we spent three years developing an actual platform to make commercially viable yields for this, this one. And you always have to remember we are competing with sugar, which is one of the cheapest commodities. So our platform has to be that efficient producing it and our purification schemes have to be that effective. So that is how this whole story of Brazil developed. And to be honest with you, I would also say it's a timing thing, it's like being in the right place at the right time with the right molecule. And it it's working out quite well for us, I should say, at this point. So that, so that it, it was a lot of factors that came together at the right time for this to be you know, where it is at right now. I think one of like the eight Peter Thiel. He says timing is the most important thing. Yeah, and I've talked to a, a number of people where when they when I talk to people that are like they achieved a level of success, the there's this guy who basically developed or was a part of a solar company in the Middle East during during the Arab Spring a couple of years ago. I don't know, like a decade now. And like during the Arab Spring, like all oil prices in the Middle East got like got screwed. Like the energy, like there was a lot of blackouts. Like just like an opportune time to have another way to get energy. And so because of that, like they like they were like going like gangbusters, like it was just like a lot of growth and a lot of potential because of just the timing of having something in place at a time that was really neat, which 
I think there's a good analogy there with what you're with what you're developing because of all this concerns about diabetes and being healthy, still wanting to enjoy your, your food. Because one of the big things that people do during the day is like make food, depending on what you like. I always make. So I, I definitely see like the timing thing coming in for you as well. There's also precedence, I think. Like if you look in the 90s, right? There were all these internet delivery companies delivering groceries and you know stuff like that. They didn't take off, right? You fast forward 10 years, 15 years, they're back in vogue. It's amazing. It's just, you know, the timing aspect of a lot of these business ideas, I think, has to do with timing more than anything else. The big concern you guys had was basically being able to produce it at scale. Like, how does how does that work? Like, how do you learn how to produce it at scale? How do you go from, like, a postdoc trying to make, like, little limited amounts of it to being able to make something that, like, people can buy and use? I spent almost 10 or 15 years of of my life expressing very hard to make proteins. So I built up a lot of, you know, repertoire of tricks and trades and, you know, insights into how things work. Usually a little a little tweak here, a little tweak there, usually increases expression levels to a large degree. And then the second aspect of it is biology has advanced since 2002. Now you have synthetic biology where you can literally build pathways within cells to make them do what you want. At this point, it was a combination of my experience with that and also the advances in synthetic biology. And it's an iterative process. You 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 try one thing, it doesn't work. Then you go back to the drawing board, try a few other things. And at the end of the day, something will work. And once you have that as a baseline, you just keep pushing, building on that, making incremental changes till you, know, till you reach the desired expression levels. So I would say it's 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 a it's a mixture of both of them. So it was just kind of like leveling up, like you already had all the base materials, and then it was just figuring a way to scale it, essentially, right? So then the question is, and maybe this is just trial and error was the best way to figure it out. But was there, like looking back at that process, what did you learn about scaling up like a biotech company molecule like that, that most people would not know about? Like I don't know how to do that. So like how would like if you wanted to like teach me how to do that, like how would you? How would I teach you to do that? The way I would do it is I would teach, give you a base protocol to follow, right? I say, okay, do this and this is where your baseline is. And to build on this, you try as many crazy things as possible. And, and, and the fun aspect of this is the more number of mistakes you make, the more you learn. And a lot of these tricks that we kind of picked up along the way actually came out of mistakes that we, that we made in the protocol or, you know, uh, that the person who's doing forgot to add something or added a little extra or added one component instead of another component. You see, so it's 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 a very trial and error dependent thing. Fortunately, at this point, you have automation also now catching up to do these kind of this kind of work. So you can take advantage of that. But we didn't have the luxury of automation. We were, we were still a small startup company, you know, growing. So it was all manual and it was a lot of well, a lot of hard work and this one and it's trial and error and determination grit not giving up because 90 percent of the time things don't well 95 percent of the time things don't work the way you think they should work but it's those five those five percent experiments that work that actually catapult you to the next level of productivity but you have to do that hundred percent of you know this messing about to explore the space kind of reminds me of the dr duadna who kind of figured out crispr and it, almost an accident, like she wasn't getting money to figure out a, a cool new way to genetically engineer people or, or, or cells and stuff. Like it was just like she was working on something else. And she's like, hey, wow, this has this, that application. Like you never really know. Like you got to just, you know, like you're saying, you got to do 100% of it 
and maybe 5%, if you're lucky, will work out. And then that 5%, then you do a new, new 100% off that 5%, slowly build it up. Yeah, and be, and be very flexible and be very aware. That's the most important thing. Be aware of what any unexpected result. You have to go down, explore that road, why it works. And that that is what I think kind of adds to your you know progress in life sciences. So then how does this molecule relate to sugars? You, you mentioned yourself that like the big comparison, the big bully on the block is sugar. How does it compare? Like that, I, I believe it's like many times sweeter. But are there health benefits? Like, what are all the benefits of, of this over sugar? Like, so there, there, there are numerous there are numerous aspects to that. The first one is sugar is a carbohydrate. So once you ingest it, it has all kinds of unwanted effects on your physiology within your body once it's absorbed into your bloodstream. Whereas the sweetener brazine that we are developing is a protein molecule. So it's like any other dietary protein that you take in, in your diet. So what happens is you, you put it into your coffee and the moment it hits your tongue, your coffee tastes sweet. And then once it enters your stomach, the brazine gets digested like any other dietary protein. So it has no other downstream effects on your physiology. So that's the first thing. The second thing is because it's a protein, it's almost zero calories because protein, I'm sure you're aware, protein is a very calorie poor source, a very calorie poor source. It's a low caloric substitute. And the third aspect is it is 1200, 1200 times sweeter than sugar. So to give you numbers, an average teaspoon of sugar is four grams. You take two teaspoons regularly on the average, that's eight grams of sugar that you're just consuming it in a cup of coffee. Whereas if you use our sweetener, Brazine, it's only eight milligrams, which, you know, it's minuscule compared to what you actually use for sugar, this one. So it's, it's a combination of the potency, the safety of this molecule, and also the zero caloric nature of this molecule that give it all the health benefits as a sugar substrate. And, and, and one more thing, it tastes like sugar compared to other sweets, both artificial and natural. Have you done like a blind taste test to see like how people would respond to it like at comparable levels? Yeah, so we've done numerous tests on this one. In most cases, people think it's sugar when when we give it to them. Success then. <laughs> you you, you achieved yeah, your yeah, mission. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that helps with the with this the distribution and scale aspect when you can be two thousand percent smaller when it comes to packaging and shipping it around. Yeah, it's 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 very economical for the food guys, final food manufacturers. If they decide to, uh, if when they go ahead and put this into their product, their, their transport costs are so much reduced because transporting a ton of sugar versus one kg of our molecule, <laughs> you can imagine the cost uh, because of the just the sheer potency of this molecule. Yeah, then there's a there's a number like there's just the quality of the molecule itself, and then there's just like the ex- the economy of scale. true. Yeah. So for people who I'm sure you've been trying to connect with people who want to do partnerships with you or, or do business when when you reach out to people like that, what is their common response? They're just like, oh, give me some of this. I'm going to save so much money and it's going to be healthier for people. Yes, there is a very encouraging response. Very, there are a lot, We work with almost every major food and beverage company in formulation trials. So that is one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is food is very regulated these days. Anything that you put on the market has to have some certification saying that it is safe. So from our perspective, our next goal is to actually get the certifications done so that the food manufacturers can start using it in this one. But they will not use it usually until we get the certification and they will not put it into consumption because 
you see sugar is so widely used there is always this thing that it's better to get the certification done and then put it into the consumer product from where you are now how long do you have a finished complete certified thing ready to go about one and a half years Not bad. starting from, because we have the process in place so it saves us a lot of time so the next stage of development is is get this certifications out of the way and while this is happening we work with all the bigger food and beverage companies to figure out where all this can slot in very quickly so that once we have the certification you know it's it's a very straightforward process what do you have left to do in that year and a half like what what is there left you have of course the certification process but is there anything else or is it really just all the certification process one more thing is we have to scale even further to bring down the cost of production as cheap as possible so that's one de- aspect of the development and at the same time get the certification process done so it's both of them to make it economical at the end of the day right so we answered timing we answered the engineering question like you know 2000% better i mean 2000 more sweet, sweet, so, sweet. yeah yeah, yeah. Sweet. do you see yourself being able to develop a, some sort of monopoly on this type of resource like is there is it defensible in any way or why wouldn't someone who produces sugar or one of those big people be like hey i'm just going to do this myself like what stops them so we have multiple process patents on this how we make it using certain technologies that we developed that is a barrier to entry for a lot of in in making it at a commercially viable scale somebody else has to figure out a brand new process to do it and we have our own you know ring fence kind of process that we've protected and and the way we see it is it's such a big market it's a 80 billion dollar market sweetener market i think it would be too arrogant of me to say that i'm only i'm going to take the entire 80 billion sweetener market so there's room for everybody but we have our own protected ring fence ip that allows us allows us to be the first to market and actually you know dev- be the first to market and take advantage of that go for the billion 80 billion 80 billion you, do you know mark cuban <laughs> the billionaire uh-huh. guy well you can be like him like every time they talk about mark cuban that's always billionaire mark cuban it's almost like a dr mark cuban at a certain point so you could be billionaire doctor founder of magellan just <laughs> everywhere you go <laughs> <laughs> so is it the intention to license the end result someone else and have them develop it or are you going to develop this all in house and do the distribution the you know all that So we will take it all the way through to the safety studies start manufacturing by ourselves either through a most probably through a CRO external CRO so that our overhead costs and this capital investment is minimal at that point and then scale from there see how how we work with the bigger ingredient manufacturers how they would like to participate in this or uh, you know jo- uh, join hand with us you know to increase the scale so it's a stepwise process and like i said because the market is very big it's a lot of opportunity opens up once we get the certification i, I would think tea drinkers would really get a kick out of you or like i think starbucks would probably like you because they have those little tiny little packets of sugar yeah do you know who are your first like beachhead markets our first market i think are going to be the new new age beverages that are coming out the healthier beverages that the millennials are looking at in a more in because a they are more natural and b they healthier there is a big demand for low sugar products in there and our first thing it would be to target that market and you know gain it take advantage of that because i don't know from what i feel i think in the next 5 years people are going to move away from carbonated beverages and stuff like that and move more towards these kind of flavored uh, drinks healthier which are healthier options so we want to be early to that party and then uh, offer our sweetener as the ideal substitute for sugar in their products because at the end of the day that consumer is going to dr- will have a lot of say you know i think that 
is the easiest way for us to get in first into the market. And they are also very receptive to these kind of uh, monitors. The smaller, more flexible companies, they're always on the lookout and always, they have this added health mandate as part of their philosophy. I think that's our first one, but not the only one. So that is where we will start off with and then expand slowly into other beverages and, you know, yogurts and it's it's literally limitless. <laughs> sugar is used everywhere. Even in your ketchup, sugar is used. So it's limitless, to be honest with you. What about the team aspect? And what are their special skills that help them? Two co-founders. One is myself. I'm a scientist by training, you know, 30 years in academia and this one. And I bring in the science aspect of it. And I run the scientific, scientific vision of the company. And our other co-founder is Lakshmi. Lakshmi, she's also my wife, actually. My wife also. And she comes with a background of marketing, business development, project management, and advertising. So she comes completely from the aspect of selling a product to a company or to the consumer. So, I mean, at at this point, having been in business for four four years, I think it's been the right team. Because we had to talk to a lot of people, a lot of the bigger companies to start getting our product into formulation trials so that was a lot of a lot of business development that was going on there so she took care of she ran that show and uh, you know handed that and uh, one at the other end the science was being developed so these uh, both of us are the team uh, founding team all right well it's good to know that you have a, a, a good team especially if it's your wife like they always say like partnerships are like marrying someone so you just got like double married so that's pretty cool so, True, yeah. and it's a shared vision, so it's easier, you know, working in the same direction for the company. So, is it just you two on the team, or are there other people? Yeah. So, in addition to us, we have three more scientists: one PhD level scientist and two master's level scientists working on working on these projects. And I must add that at this point, we have a few other sweetener candidates in the pipeline also. So they're fully involved in that, in getting that scale up stage. Do you see yourself needing any new people over the next over the next two years? Do you see yourself needing new infrastructures or are you like, is this the team you're going to, that's good enough to, you know, get it to that, that next stage? I think this team is good enough to get us to the certification because everything else from this point can be contracted out, to be honest. It's more economical for us to just get it done that way. Keep the company flexible and very nimble at, at this point. So yeah, so this team will take us through two certifications. How did you go about hiring the right people? Because I think work culture and finding good people is always something that's difficult to do right that was a learning experience to be honest it was a learning experience in the first year we made many mistakes hiring the wrong people and it's so hard you know to figure out how a person is going to perform in the lab unless they spend six months in the lab you see them performing in the lab it's very hard to judge a person at an interview stage even three interviews later you just don't know how they're going to perform in the lab so it's I would say uh, we after making the mistakes, you develop a sixth sense for the for you know how a person is going to behave. Uh, it's very it's very hard to describe it. I really don't know how to put it into words. But it's that sixth sense that usually has helped us in kind of solidifying this team. This but there have been a lot of mistakes. I must agree in the first team. That's all right. You got to make mistakes. Yeah. Like like you said, you got to iterate around that five percent. Have you tried having the person who is applying or you know going to be brought onto the team? meeting the entire team and like having everyone kind of interview or sit down with them? A very small team. So we've tried it, but it really didn't make much of a difference. And it actually, well, in our experience, it confuses things even more. For some reason, it, it, it just didn't work out. So usually at this point, it's only me and Lakshmi who actually 
talk to the new person, interview them and, and have a discussion with them more than science, have a discussion on what their music is. And do they think sugar is a problem? You see, that's the first thing. Unless they think it's a problem, they're not going to be motivated to work. So it's, it's, a, it's a conversation. And then you start getting an idea and a general feeling. And, and we, let it so, we let it simmer and then we go back for a second interview. And then, then you know what the appropriate questions to ask. And that's when you can figure out. Lee Iacocca, the autom- automotive guy, he said that you can, you can tell a number of things about a person on the first interview, but you can't tell whether or not they're lazy or not. True, yeah. Yeah, like laziness is one of those things. Yeah, well, as long as it's working and you keep experimenting with it. Yeah, there's a system in place now that works, so we stick to it. Anyway, we most probably this team itself would take us through, so I don't think we'd be taking on new people soon. What has been most rewarding about your journey? Most rewarding in the journey? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, it's the fact that we took the risk on, on an unknown journey pretty much. And then to actually see it come to some sort of fruition and to see an application for it, right? The moment we put it into a coffee, the first batch, I still remember when we tried it. And you put it into your coffee and you can actually say, yes, this tastes like sugar. And you see the potential opening up. I think that was the biggest, uh, biggest satisfying moment for me, this one. Okay, then more of a fun question is, what are you a nerd about? Like some people like Star Trek, some people like soccer. There's like a big World Cup going on, but what are you a nerd about? I really like trading currencies, so I'm a little crazy about them. So forex trading, so it's kind of my hobby actually that I do on the side. How does that work? Well, you just speculate. It's again a calculated risk that you take. So you're like a gambler. I wouldn't say it's a, you see a gamble versus a calculated risk are two different things. I mean, you have to play this, it's a game of odds and you have to stack the odds in your favor and then Yes, take the gamble at that point. You can't take a gamble at any point, you know, when the odds are not in your favor. So that's one thing that, that I really like. Have you ever made like a lot from it? Or is it just like fun, like like penny stocks, like sometimes? You can make a decent amount if, if because I don't do it full time. So it's not like my source of income. You can make a decent amount if you, if you are at it regularly over a long period of time. What's a decent amount? In your- uh, 1%, uh, 2% return on your equity every month. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a decent thing. What makes you hopeful for the future? As a society, we are realizing that we need to change. And I think that awareness is coming. And, and we are going to see a paradigm shift in a lot of things of how we live and how we utilize the resource. And I think it's, it's a very positive thing what is happening all around us now in terms of awareness and people's involvement in, in conserving our natural resources and being more careful of even things like water. So I that, that I. I see very positive things in that direction. What will you do if your startup succeeds? If you're like you're able to have everyone getting paid and you're making the monies and you're able to do all the that you want to do, like will you just like keep working? Will you celebrate in any way when you meet that milestone? And or like how will you celebrate? <laughs> you know, I haven't thought about it so far. I I have no idea. To be honest, I have no idea. Still a little far away. Once we hit that milestone. I think, I don't know if there's a word for it, right? What's it called? Anticlimactic or no, there's another word. Usually you you have such high expectations and then when you actually achieve something, that sense of elation is not there. But I don't know what that word is. So yeah, I, I don't know. It will be interesting once we reach that milestone. Remember to take pauses. There's a, there's a guy named Chase in the Civil War in the United States who basically uh-huh. never relaxed and he was kind of a dick. And... The 
And he never became president. So I'm just saying, like, be, be a nice guy like Lincoln. You get to be president. <laughs> and just watch. Just don't go to theaters. You know, like, that's all you got to do. Just, like, avoid theaters or have better security. You got to enjoy the moment or else you won't have the energy and the fuel to keep working. True. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important, I think, work-life balance. Well, I mean, you got your, your wife on the board. So I feel like uh-huh. I feel like she'll keep you honest. If she's like, you're not relaxing enough, you're like, you got to stop. And, like, she'll, like, ground you or something. I don't know the relationship. I'm just joking. But, <laughs> like, she, hopefully she'll, like, uh, she'll balance you out. What does a typical day, week look like? Like, how do you work? Like, how does how does that work? What does it look like? As long as in the lab, uh, while I'm working in the lab, it's very, it's quite, it, it's dependent on the experiment that's going. So my life is revolving around the experiment. If I have to be back in the lab at 4 in the morning, I have to do it. Uh, so it, it's it's all over the place. There's no set timings. There are no weekends. It's just push, 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 push this project till we get to our milestone. That, that's about it, I think. It, it, it revolves around getting the experiments done and moving on to the next. Is there ever a sense of diminished returns when you don't have weekends and stuff? like? So usually the way we structure these, uh, these is because there are three or four of us. We kind of spread the load between all of us in terms of timings and, you know, these odd hours and things like that so that when you when one person does this thing at an odd hour in one week, the next week they don't have somebody else picks up the thing for him, him or her. So they're not continuously exposed to this kind of thing. This one. So uh, we have we haven't seen it so far among our uh, folks. What is something really funny that's happened to you? Well, I look at it as funny. I was in a plane crash, a very unexpected plane crash, where my plane ran out of fuel. Where was this plane? Where were you in going India? to? No, I was flying from one city. It's it's in the south. We are flying from a a city called Chennai to a city called Hyderabad. And I don't know what these guys planned, but in midway, the plane ran out of fuel. <laughs> so we <laughs> crash landed in a paddy field. You survived a plane crash. You're like Harrison Ford. So that's really funny. How, did you just, they just landed normally? You didn't get any scratches or bruises? What happened was, because it's a paddy field, right? It rained the previous night. So the whole thing was filled with water. I mean, about four, uh, about five feet water in a paddy field, rice field. So there was a very big cushion for when the plane crash landed. So other than, you know, being thrown against the seat in front of you, there were not that many injuries to the passengers, actually. And because it was wet, fuel didn't catch fire also. So we were lucky in two ways. Yeah, I'm going to stay in the United States. We don't have problems. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, we, we we fill up all of our planes before we go for plane trips. It's so, I mean, it, it sounded so ridiculous when we heard this. No, how the hell can you not fill up plane up there, you know? In America, people would try and throw money at you to be quiet about it. But do, do they do that in India? Try and like paper over the problem? Not really, because this this thing is run by the government, right? It was run by the government. This was in the 90s. This airline was run by the government. So you, you can't literally, I mean, there'll be a few protests here and there. But at the end of the day, because nobody got hurt, seriously injured or, you know, thank God nobody died or anything. It, it, it died out pretty quick in the media. Is there anyone in the science community that really inspires you? There was a scientist called Har- Hargobind Kurana from India. He's, he was a Nobel laureate. He discovered how to, the genetic code, the codons and all. And uh, he's, he's a fantastic scientist. And he's always been my inspiration for very good science. And, you know, in terms of personality and how he talks about science. Is he still alive by chance? No, he passed away, I think, five years back. Yeah. Five, six, he, he was at MIT. Is there any anything that's being developed right now that you're watching and, and are like, oh wow? Like I think, like as an analogy, like a lot of people are watching SpaceX for the cool stuff and, and that they're doing with like rockets and stuff. 
Is there anything in the science community that's like that? I think the next frontier is actually building a de novo organism, actually putting genes together in a test tube and that coding for life and giving rise to an organism. I think they're almost maybe five, five years from there. I mean, the proof of principle is already done on a limited scale, but I think that would be a phenomenal step for biology if you can actually, you know, build an organism from scratch. In a general sense, is there any books or recommendations or anything like that for people who have liked what you've been talking about and want to learn more? Like, or do you have any books yeah, or stuff uh, that you recommend? Yeah. There's this author called Nassim Taleb. Oh, yeah, I like that guy. Who talks about anti-fragility. I think that's a very important book for scientists. I mean, to see how to manage risk, I think that's the most important. Uh, well, it, it made a big uh, impact on me in terms of risk and how you look at a project. So I would re- highly recommend at least going through it once. All right, then. All right. Then the l- last big thing is like, what have you learned uh, through this experience that you'd want people to think about? If anyone, if, if, if anyone was like, I don't know if I want to start a startup, get involved in a startup or like sitting on the fence, like if someone's on the fence or they're just about to start something, what type of things would you encourage them to start thinking about? I Because like I said, my belief is timing is important. So you have to look. I mean, if it's in the life sciences, you have to look five years from now what the problem is going to be. There is no point in working on a problem that is already there because there are so many people working on it. You're you're just going, at least we are going to get lost in fundraising and getting our story out there. It's it's just too much noise. But if I think if you're looking ahead five years, no matter, it might seem impossible now, but believe me, in five years, the technology will be there to help you to scale and do whatever you need to do it. But I think that is what my recommendation is five years. Yeah, I think that it's consistent with a lot of the stuff I've read as well. They, uh, I think Jeff Bezos, the guy of Amazon, said that a lot of the successes he's noticed has basically took 10 years to be successes. Like, so if you're thinking about starting something, like really think that it's going to be like five to 10 years. Like it, it shouldn't be easy because if it's easy, then anyone can replicate and steal what you're doing. Like you want it to be hard. And it will be done. If it's easy, it would be done by now, right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's the thing. So, yeah, I have five to ten years, give it a time frame. And uh, and also de-risk a little by somehow. Uh, it, it has to be some kind of business model or something where you can de-risk to a certain degree uh, along the path. So those two would be my main uh, no suggestions to anybody wanting to get in, especially life science. I 100% agree. Then last question for you. Is there anything that you'd want people to have a takeaway or a call to action because of? this dialogue is or maybe follow you along follow along somehow with you or i mean really it's up, up to you. you can tell us like your twitter handle or something and we can follow you i it will be in the show notes but like is there yeah call to action all, all for you what, what call to action would you leave us with? oh just go for your dreams i mean you you have one chance one life go for it you know? <laughs> can you say your twitter handle real quick yeah it's Mag- Mag- magellan m-a-g-e-l-l-a-n underscore life l-i-f-e all right everyone should follow that there's a lot of great stuff. I follow it, and that's how we connected. So if you want to contact him, like send him a message on there. He's pretty responsive. And that was Abraham, CEO and co-founder of Magellan Life Sciences, who has developed and is close to bringing to market 
a sweetener that is two, two thousand percent more sweet than sugar and it's healthier and it has all these benefits and we got into all that in this episode we got into him crashing in a plane as well other than that i want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever which is called patreon if you go to patreon and look for learning with lol you'll see this podcast don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we can be found on twitter at lol this year facebook and on the website learningwithlol.com also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every monday new episodes every tuesday and new blog posts around every thursday remember to share and tell your friends please and thank you